Hello, welcome to the I Am The Code podcast. I'm your host, Mariam Jam. Happy Friday. Thank you so much for joining us. It means so much to all of us at I Am The Code. Thank you. Our season three continues with the team Rebuilding Inclusion. We are still working extremely hard at I Am The Code and planning amazing events for the next coming months. So I was talking to a friend the other day and I was talking about how can we make sure we have collective compassion. COVID is still here. Many people have lost their jobs, their lives, businesses. And I think as we celebrate or even talk about the one year anniversary of lockdown, it is so imperative that we pay attention. We have to pay attention to people who have lost everything. And I think that we need to also remember that people are still fighting COVID-19. We're not there yet. Bring empathy, compassion, and kindness towards the people who are really suffering right now. And what I've done this week is to invite my dear friend, Ninko Ali. I've just heard that she got her new podcast from LBC, which is a radio station in the UK. So congratulations, Ninko. I'm really happy for you. She's a social activist and the Five Foundation CEO and founder. Really, really awesome lady. I got to meet Ninko many years ago where uh, she educated us about female genital mutilation. I didn't know about the topic that much. I heard about it, but I didn't know much about the effect it has in the UK and how girls were being affected. And uh, I realized that at least 200 million girls and women alive today and living in 31 countries have undergone FGM, we call it female genital mutilation. This is a crime, ladies and gentlemen, it is a crime. And we must do something about this. I know she's doing everything she can to educate government, private sector, and philanthropic foundations. And I think we really need to support her. We had a candid conversation about her journey, her foundation, how she's making a difference in the life of women and girls. So I really hope you enjoy my conversation. She's a really amazing woman. I see you on the other side. And thank you so much for being here. Nimko, salam alaikum. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Um, I'm good. I'm good. Obviously, COVID has made everything a little bit more crazier, but I'm okay, alhamdulillah. Nimko, I just want to tell the boys and girls, so your podcast is going to be a, such an amazing podcast because we're going to send it to the Dab Refugee Camp and Kakumo Refugee Camp. But let me tell you just why I invite you. I always say to people why I invited them to the podcast. You have done two things that really stay in my memory for a very long time now that I wanted the girls and the boys to, uh, to really understand why I invited you to the podcast. I think the first thing is, I didn't know who you were before. And I went to this big conference in London, in the United Kingdom, when I saw you standing up there, beautifully dressed in red, in different African colors. And someone asked a question and you stood up and took the microphone. And I was in the, I was in the audience and someone said, do you know that woman? I said, no. She said, she's the, the first woman in the UK who's been really pushing for a female genital mutilation. And I heard you speak. Oh my goodness. I was like, wow, somebody like her is talking about these subject matters. And I was so taken away. And the second is just your, I think your kindness and your authenticity. You just always pushing for boundaries. You're educating people. Every time I call you to come and help us, you're there. You are the I am the co-champion. You are from Somali born, but you are a British woman respected in, in, in this country, OBE. And I just love the fact that you are in my world. You are in my network. I can brag about you. <laughs> And I just wanted to say that. So welcome to the I Am The Code podcast, Nimko Ali. Thank you for oh, being here. 
Oh my God, thank you very much for those kind words. I'm incredibly proud to have you as a friend and a sister in the fight for African women as well. So incredibly honored to be here. How are you doing? How is COVID treating you? It's okay. You know what? I, we could all complain. It's hard not being able to see my mom and not being able to travel. And like sometimes I do get down about the whole point of losing the freedoms that we had. But I'm hopeful the vaccine is going to come and we'll be able to have some more freedoms. I was going to say be back to normality, but I think the, the world uh, back the way it was before COVID was normal, but it wasn't good. And I hope we don't necessarily go, go back exactly to the way that things were, but we do better. And then we were doing about a year and a half ago for people. Absolutely. The building back better is probably, you know, a better word than, than go back to normal. Absolutely. Like I said, you used to travel a lot. And so what did you do since last March? Did you miss traveling? Yeah, I honestly, I have missed traveling. And at, at the beginning, it was fine because I was like, at least I was, it was being home was a novelty. It was, oh, it was really nice to be home. Um, it was really nice to be able to be in bed and watch like Netflix and sleep in and do all these other kind of things. But now my body kind of aches to be in Africa. My body aches to be on a plane and be able to meet and travel. So yeah, I incredibly, I miss traveling a lot. But again, that's a privilege that I was able to do in terms of trying to bring the voices of those women that I work with to those that are able to make change. We'll talk about your foundation in a minute, but but you arrived in Britain when you were four years old. I've been always telling you about the young girls I work with across the world, they're refugees, and then they're refugees from Somalia. Do you remember that trip? And what can you share with our young girls who are listening to you from all over the world? And I know you've been an advocate for human rights issues and giving people dignity and pride. What can you say to the girls who are listening to you right now? Yeah, so when I first came to the UK at the age of four as a refugee, I, I was here as a Somali citizen. So we had, so my parents were Somali nationals and, and had passports from there. And then, but when I came back at the age of seven, I was a refugee. And it was quite confusing because I identify as being a Somali woman, but I've spent 95% of my life in this country. So it's really weird to have two identities, but at the same time, only physically have known one. I, I saw at the age of seven, I saw civil war, I saw the brutality of of war and I saw the consequences that has on the people that like the loved ones and there are people who were not as privileged and as lucky as I was to in order to gain the safety of the United Kingdom and have the opportunities that I have now but I just say like the fact that there is nothing that that separates me and the girls that are living in refugee camps but opportunities and I work every day to make sure that every, every girl has the opportunities that I had. Always talk about mental health and how can people take care of themselves. And I remember yesterday you made my day. I called you. I was having a chat with you last week, yesterday, actually. You said, we must protect ourselves. And uh, yeah. that really made me happy. And I said, you know what? I'm going to close the computer. I'm going to go and sit down. As Nimko said, we must protect ourselves. What are you doing to protect your mental health, to make sure you're keeping strong because we're not traveling? What are you doing on a daily basis? Can you help the girls? Yeah, on a daily basis for me is actually just saying no and really understanding that my work that I do, my intelligence, my integrity, everything about me is valuable. Like solemn, do we ever actually value the lives of African girls and never do we um, value the input that they put into this world and the contributions that they make. So ultimately, I just want girls to know that, that they don't have to keep giving without necessarily getting any gratitude. And it's okay to say no, and it's okay to walk away from um, toxic people. I think my, for, for me on this side of the planet, it's, I still deal with the racism and the sexism that many girls on the continents are probably dealing with but from their own but it's from this kind of I don't know it's because we've never put a value on 
black African women. Therefore, uh, nobody actually thinks that, that um, there is any value to our work. So for the first time ever, I'm valuing my integrity, I'm valuing my intelligence, and I'm valuing the assets that I put out into this world. So unless they're going to really respect that or help me grow, then I think it's easy to, like, you know, I'm happy just to step away. So basically the girls need to really respect themselves. Is that what you're saying? No, respecting yourself. I think women respect themselves, but I think it's really understanding that you deserve value and those around you have to value you and, and have to show you respect. So it's just one of those, yeah, it's just basically saying that there is nothing wrong with saying no, that there is nothing wrong with asking for respect. And there is nothing wrong with ultimately not just like, you know, pleasing people around you. And I think that's what, I think that's what you're basically told as a child that is either living in poverty or as a refugee or somebody that doesn't necessarily have the privileges or the platforms that other people around you have that you have to try harder. It's not necessarily you trying harder, you are actually perfect as you are. So I think that's what I want to say to girls is that they are perfect as they are and they don't have to give extra in order to receive the respect that should be given to them. Oh, that's really amazing. Again, like I said earlier, you are somebody who have received so many accolades and you're very humble anyway. And you just receive OBE from the Queen in England. How did you feel about this? Because you always talk about your background in a very humble way, but also very proud, right? Like you said earlier to the girls, you respect yourself, who you are. You want people to appreciate you for who you are as a Black woman. How did how did you feel about that? And, and do you feel your work is respected and recognized in this country? It's quite funny. So it is respected in some places and in other places it's actually it contradicts their views of African and black women the fact that I have been through something incredibly as brutal and as horrible as FGM I've been like as a refugee we lost everything but to be able to be grounded in myself and in my essence it's something that really scares a lot of people who don't actually believe that anybody outside the European English-speaking um, people actually have the ability to have agency so I see I deal with microaggressions of racism on a day-to-day -day basis but then the acknowledgement that I get for my work as as life-changing and as as something that's credible that's amazing I was incredibly proud to to receive the OBE and it was because of the fact that I did the work for sometimes I just find it quite disrespectful when some people used to just call me brave and this and that and I think it does take a lot of guts and to be brave to do what I do but it also takes a lot of intelligence and a lot of strategic work yeah I think that there is um, a certain level of respect within certain spaces because of their own problems can't necessarily deal with it but that is what I'm learning and I think one of the things I would love to tell or one thing I would love to tell the girls listening to this is that when you get projection of negativity or somebody dismissing your ideas, even though when you know that it's not you, it's them. So I'm learning that more and more that the pushback that I get about my kind of authenticity and need to stand for African women and speak as an African woman is nothing to do with me. It's, it's because they have a massive problem with actually trying to emancipate from their own thinking that African women can be more than just the one thing that they expect us to be. So I think what you're saying is really, what I like about you is that you don't take nonsense. And I really learned that it's authenticity, you know who you are, and, um, and you're working very hard to make sure everyone knows what you're doing. And you get a lot of abuse. I did get a little abuse, and I want to actually just protect this um, prominent African woman who, who I don't know. It's, it's the fact that we are allowed to be busy, and it's, it takes a lot of privilege and a lot of work in order for us to be able to have the spare time to do all the, all the kind of labor that we're asked for to do um mm. obviously I, I would always prioritize um speaking to young african um, women and organizations but i think everybody has their journeys and I, I was just talking to before i came on this i was on another call with somebody 
from Liberia and they were knocking, like, you know, Salif as, like, as the first female president. She didn't do this, she didn't do that. And so she was worse than any of the male presidents that had come before and after her. And they were like, obviously, no, because they were all brutal. I said, so why are we expecting women in order to fix everything when generations of men have actually failed and worsened things? So we also have to be easier on ourselves. So I'm sure that um, that Caucasian woman probably had a lot more free time because she's been able to ask for help and been able to get the help that she needs. Yeah, I'm always here to help. And I always get a lot of pushback and hate for the things I do. But I think we also have to protect our sisters and protect our energy as well in that sense. Absolutely. I agree with that. I think the other thing I think you you and I have been always talking about is how do we protect our continent? How do we protect our narratives? How do we make sure the aid in Africa and everything we're doing? But also as Africans, how do we work together? Because the, I'm going to talk about your foundation in a minute, but you are a very vocal person on you know female genital mutilation and you have you've been doing amazing work in this country. This is how I got to know you. Why do you think it's important to talk about these issues and why do we need to educate people about these amazing, painful topics that people are trying to brush out sometimes? Even us as Africans, we don't want to talk about it. Why do you think it's that? I think we don't want to talk about it because we've been told that this is embarrassing, this is shameful, and basically we are barbaric for doing this when the reality is, like, you know, male violence, which FGM is, is, is a global issue. We have women being raped in one of the largest and most successful economies in the world here in the UK. We have children being abused. So evil and violence against women and girls is a universal thing. And nobody actually has reached the point of gender equality in order to be able to say that all these things are ending. So we've been made to feel because of the fact that it's quite funny, like the word development, I always find it quite problematic because I'm just thinking that Africa as a continent was well developed before this side of the planet. So what are you trying to develop rather than what you're actually doing is creating cultural norms, projecting things like fear and embarrassment onto us in order for us not to be able to articulate our own abuse. I remember when I first said that FGM was a form of violence against women and girls, like people were shocked. And those people were people that worked in the women's sector and were, and were meant to be defending women. And she's, oh no, but isn't that done through ignorance? People know if you have a child and you're harming them and they're crying, they know that's wrong. So there is no ignorance. There has to be a power control dynamic. And we're not allowed to speak for our own experiences. It's very rare that we create the stage, create the content, and then advocate and amplify that. We're always told to be like, you know, part of someone else's story or someone else's platform in order to entertain. So in a roundabout way, the embarrassment and the thing, the reason why people don't want to talk about it is because very few people actually really care about African women. Do you think you are misunderstood? Do you know what? I'm not misunderstood. People work to misunderstand me on purpose. And this is another thing that I've learned in, in order to protect my energy. I say things very clearly and I say things that if they were articulated by a white man or by somebody in a different space would be like, oh, that's great. That's really groundbreaking. Oh, that's interesting. But because I say it, it seems like it's threatening because the idea of having a continent of women like you and I who are free, who are vocal and who don't take any of this kind of like trying to undermine us. It is quite scary for, for the white supremacy, which the international development and philanthropy sector really is. The idea, the fact that actually we don't need their help. We can actually really do these things. So I, my favorite quote these days is that I'm not going to argue with people who intentionally misinterpret and to, in order to misunderstand what I say. What I say is very clear. It just doesn't fit your context of what a black African woman should be saying. 
One of the things we just discussed earlier is your intellect. You are a very intelligent woman. I've been to so many meetings and I've seen you speak and sometimes you just said exactly how it is. Also, you bring some really intelligence, some context, some perspective into place. Who are the most influential people uh, in your career? And can you just tell the girls and the boys listening from all across the world right now, where did you study? What did you like when you went to school? So the most intelligent people that I have met, actually, so I think we have to come by differentiate between like, you know, knowledge and intelligence, like knowing something doesn't make you understand and actually make you intelligent. The most intelligent people I've met have actually been my grandparents and also people who haven't actually gone to school because what they've done is they've actually thought and they've basically processed things. Very few people who are academics actually Like, for first of all, they don't want to be wrong. And second of all, they actually haven't processed anything, not through lived experience and definitely not through actually trial and error in terms of other ways. So I wanted to study law because having seen the civil war in Somalia, which led to Somaliland, where I'm from, breaking away, I knew that really just as what was a key factor in terms of really having cohesion and, and connections. Like my mother assumed that she was going to go back to Somaliland and be able to live her life as an African woman. So she never mentally unpacked. So to have not just one generation of her children here, but to have another generation, her grandkids being so far from the place that they were born and sourced from actually creates a different kind of emotional crisis that they weren't ready for. So I studied law. I read people like um, George Orwell, who looked outside the box. I read Nawal al-Salawi. Like, I really like people that don't think straight, that people that really question authority. And that's why a lot of the people I've got along with would probably be seen as social misfits because they don't follow the social code in the way which is set out. And we do need the majority of the people to fit to um, follow the social code, but there has to be that kind of spark that things completely differently in order to come up with things like the internet or come up with things like airplanes you have to be able to go beyond the capacity of what you're actually taught so like knowledge is different to intelligence and imagination is actually I think the most fundamental thing to allowing you to see a different world and see into a different way of thinking. That's really amazing. I was reading uh, before I ask you about the foundation because I want people to know about your the five foundation the book. So I, I remember you and I meeting at Waterloo Station. <laughs> yeah. I was so proud that day because I went to it was a shop. I don't know what the name of the shop is anymore, but I went there. I'm always looking for African authors. I want to become a, a writer. I'm a, I'm a writer, but I want to become. A, I want to have my book published, and I'm always going and looking at books in stores. Who are the latest Africans who wrote books? And I was so proud that. Day. I've got a photo we're going to share with the girls. Your book is called What We Were Not Told About. It's really beautiful. And I've got it with me in one of my favorite places here in the house. How long did it take you to write the book? And, and, and what do you think the girls should know about the book? You know, If you have one or two things you want them to know about the book. Yeah, it was meant to have a turnaround of six months. But it ended up taking me two years to write it because it ended up being a little bit more emotional than I actually intended it to be. And in the book, it's about all the kind of different stages of womanhood, which is periods, like relationships, um, pregnancies and, and menopause. And one of the things that I found is that in that time, I, because of the FGM that I had, there was this kind of gap between my mother's relationship and mine. And it was this whole point of this woman that I thought was meant to protect me and all these things. So I've actually put a lot of pressure on my mum to be perfect. But to realize that my mother was human and my grandmother was about to pass away for us to have this. We were two generations now actually closer than ever than we had been because we were both like, you know, adult women. That was really cathartic for me. So that's why it took a little bit longer. And 
one of the things I really, another thing that I want the girls to know is the fact that love and learning to love those people who gave birth to you or around you or even respect them is a process. As African women and especially as Muslim women, we're always taught not to criticize or critique our parents, but we're also human beings and we feel emotional pain. And those that we love the most sometimes are the people that hurt us the most. So it's okay to actually question the love that you have for those that are closest to you. There's nothing wrong with you. And heaven does lie beneath the feet of your mother. I do believe that. It takes a process to get to the point where if your mother is not perfect, then um, for you to be able to really truly believe that. So if, if any girls on here are struggling or are feeling in a way hurt or not being able to connect with their mother or another woman in their life that they thought they, they think they should love, like they're human. So... Like, you know, loving my mother as, as a human and not as a superpower was a way of like really ex- being able to accept her flaws. That's so true what you just said. One of the things I had, my mom died in 2019. I had this post-trauma stress disorder to get on with her. And I, I could never tell her how I felt because I've never knew her that much. What I loved about what you said about your mom is that you managed to open up and and, and heal and, and have this conversation, which I think that many of us in Africa actually don't do because of the culture, the norms, and the fact that we can't just talk back to our parents. So it was really fascinating um, to hear. I also read that you were born in a coat, a gold coat. Are you like a novelty or something, Nimko? My name is Ne'ma, which means blessing and gift from God. So I was the first grandchild um, and the first child to my mom and dad so I was very much privileged uh, the first cut I had was gold and the second one which is the bigger bed where after my sister was born was like like especially carved from this incredible wood from my mother and so my mother and my father paid a lot of money for so I did actually have an incredibly privileged life and one of the things to point out about identity is that as an African woman, you you carry your experiences and, and, your, and your privilege and your aspirations that your parents have for you to a new place. So when I came to the United Kingdom, it's like I, when we came, like, you know, as refugees and ended up losing everything, it's still like, you know, my parents still had those aspirations for me. And I still had the ability of being brought up to a certain extent of having privileges and understanding that. So in one generation, I could go from like having nothing to the point of actually now being able to run a foundation and get an OBE because of the fact that I was completely, I, and I still am from a Somali and a Somali non context, but I'm very privileged. I'm from the 1% of, of a bigger 1%. So, uh, I mean, of a more even privileged of 1%. So both my mother and father are from community, like backgrounds that are very privileged in the cities that we were born in. Yeah, I don't, I think I get away with, with a lot of things because I carried that kind of abilities with me. And sometimes you can be stripped from the materialist things, but if you carry that kind of truth and authenticity, I think sometimes it does trickle down into your parents, into your children and into the people around you. I think that's what I've noticed. One of the things I want the girls and boys to know about what I re- what I feel and what I see about is the nobility. You're very proud of yourself. You don't take nonsense. And it's not because you're trying to be a difficult person. You just know who you are and where you come from. And I think that is really important to know. You were born and you had a gold coat. I've got more respect for you. So we're going to call you now Honorable Nimko Ali. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> we're going to call you Honorable Nimko Ali. It's really fascinating, honestly. You are also very involved with politicians, like I said, earlier i came across a few long time ago when you were educating people around the fgm and sharing your story do, do you think that fgm is understood now and do you think you are really moving the needle you talk about data and numbers all the time would you mind just telling our listeners what is the five foundation doing and what is the current data right now for fgm and how they can get involved to help you 
basically the five foundation is the global partnership to end fgm and our principal aim is to really leverage money for african women on the front line because african women are the ones that are doing the work there are so there are 200 million women globally living with the consequences of fgm and for us it's about funding fgm can end but it can only end when we actually empower and and actually fund african women politics controls the world and you have to be able to be part of it in order if you want to be able to make change but the reality is there is still so much racism and sexism within the concept of development. And I hate that word, but this de development thing, the, the fact that we go to Africa, take the learnings from black and African women, come back, then these people come back here, claim to, are going to be able to um, do this work and then go back and actually try to educate the same people that they took the information from, rather than actually us saying, you guys are doing the work, let's kind of fund them. So it's at the moment, it's like things are changing where there's economic opportunities for women. They're lifting themselves and their communities out of poverty and they're ending FGM. They're not doing FGM. They're putting their girls into school and seeing education as the main form of investments rather than cutting them and getting girls into marriage. And if there's anybody that's listening to this that's able to be able to fund, it's like the Five Foundation can get money directly to women. But we also have to change our narratives. We have to stop seeing um, Africa as a place of where we send aid rather as a place of somewhere we can work together in solidarity and collaboratively in order to build and develop in the next few years there's like Africa's population in the next 30 or um, 40 years could hit the four could hit the two billion mark and those billions of children are going to be are going to be born to adolescent girls who haven't been given opportunities so I really want to say that Africa's success is based on its female future and we need to invest in that female future because that is the only way that we're going to be able to sustain not just the continent, but I think the world. Wow, that's really amazing. I, I agree with you. We need to invest more in women and girls. The other thing I also noticed that, you know, our girls are working on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. They love STEM subjects, which is science, technology, engineering, mathematics, art and design. We're putting this in refugee camps all across the world. When you were young, what subject did you like? Did you like math, science? What did you like as a young girl when you were growing up? It was really interesting. I liked history. History was my favorite subject. And I really wanted to study history at school, at university. But my, obviously, like everybody had an opinion about the fact that you, you can't do history because there's no there's no future and that you have to do something technical, scientists or whatever. But honestly, the two most powerful subjects to study are history and English. And I always used to say to my uh, little cousins at the moment as well, it's like the UK doesn't give you marks for getting the right answer. They give you a mark for explaining how you got to the answer. It can be wrong or right. So if you look at the major subjects such as physics and maths, which both have numbers at, at the core of that, the higher papers or the papers that are given to the more intellectual people have fewer questions and more space for you to explain your workings of that. What they want for the people that they think that are basic is they want you just to come up with the answer. So critical thinking and actually working through something, even if the answer you get to is wrong, actually is marked, you know, given more value in terms of intelligence. So both history and English, like, you know, really allow you to do that. You get to study the, the past and really write about it and really be able to critique it and see what you've learned from it. So history was always my first subject because... I don't think this assumption that we're wiser than people that came before us when there was actually less war back in the day and there was a little bit more humanity and people lived happier, it's a fallacy. So yeah, history was my favorite subject. 
Wow, that's amazing. I love the history. Is it, is it why you have this general knowledge? Because you're very eloquent. How did you become this powerful orator and speaker? Where did you learn this? Is it through your journey? But you know what? It's like, it's been a journey. It's been a process. So when I was um, younger, I fell into a well, as you do. And I ended up having a stammer, like a real, like which comes through sometimes. But I used to do a lot of writing. And when you're, when you're necessarily, actually, for a long time, I didn't speak. I read and I wrote for a long time. And that kind of allowed me to um, be able to get my thoughts together. And also, I don't have an opinion on everything. I have opinions on things that I'm informed on. And I believe that you have to be able to understand what you're talking about. I just don't say things for the sake of it. There are reasons why I say and I choose my words carefully and the things that I intervene in carefully. Wow. The other thing I was going to ask you, and you and I have been speaking about this for a very long time. We've now mature women. We've grown up. We've been doing this for nearly 20 years now. Do you think you have become more diplomatic and milder? Is it because you've learned to know yourself and as we get older together? Because we, you and I get a lot of bad press and people always having a go at us because we're very vocal. Do you know what? I found, like, you know, I found a lot more peace in myself. And it's just like, I had this peace when I was younger because I just never really cared what anybody thought. And like I was saying, the fact that um, arguing with people that want to misinterpret you on a day-to-day basis. So I think I found peace that it's not me, it's them. So basically the energy that I give comes out of me i don't want to live in energy poverty personal energy poverty so i'm protecting that myself so i haven't become more chilled i've just become a little bit more like when you're younger you actually have more energy to waste i'm just now thinking actually, i don't have the energy for that so i've become a little bit more self um like like self-preservational i want to take care of myself so i'm all about self-care in that sense but yeah i haven't i don't think you met out i think you just learn that sometimes certain people are not worth your energy. And you know that, as weirdly enough, you do that as a child. So as a child, like if you're three, four, like when they're really like toddlers and they have to sleep in order to gain energy back, when something doesn't interest them, they just walk away from it. But then as a teenager, and when you've got all this like abundance of energy, you just want to put everything into that and you will burn out. So yeah, I'm just too old for this stuff now. I just need to... Um, I need to protect myself. I need to protect my heart and my soul. I've got just tears in my eyes just by listening to that. So do you think that with COVID-19, we have missed the boat in just protecting our energy? I love the word energy poverty. I love that. So do you think we've learned from, you know, all the mistakes we made and just being out there, everyone wants to create content. Everyone is just saying nonsense. Do you think we've learned something from it? It's, it's about the spaces that you put us on or you put yourself in. One of my friends said the other day, oh, everybody's going crazy on social media. I'm like, no, they haven't. It's just the fact that it's like opening the door when somebody's on the toilet. It might happen once in a while because you're never home at the same time. But now everybody's home, so you're always opening the door to the toilet <laughs> and you're always catching somebody doing something. So because of the fact that we've got nowhere else to go, this is what happens when you basically limit human activity. They all congregate in one place. And then the terrible things about humans come to the forefront because most of us are not like that. Yeah, I think what we've learned from what we've learned from um, COVID, which I always believe in, is that actually humans are not the most amazing things on this planet. I once had a conversation with this guy. He's, I said to him, like, I was talking about religion. And he said, how can you be so smart and believe in God? I said, like, the whole point is I don't need to see God in order to believe in it. And this idea, the fact that we're so amazing, is just actually quite ridiculous. I said, an ant is more amazing than a human being. Like, we can't see it right now. But if you've got its gang together, you can probably move you, like, in, in the room if, if, they, if they collectively work together. So I think we have to. And what COVID, I'm hoping, will teach people is that we are so vulnerable that a virus can spread 
across the globe in less than three, four months and could actually kill us all or actually shut us down all to our basically houses. So if you can't see COVID, but you believe in it, then why don't you believe in God or something else? Like humans are not that amazing. Absolutely. No, I do agree. One of the, the other thing I was going to ask you, who is your superhero? Do you know what? My superhero used to be my grandmother, God rest her soul. But I think now it's my mum. And I, I probably wouldn't have said that. Like, why, why do you think she's your superhero? Because I think the fact that it's like when you, my mum, my auntie, I think all people that had lost, that became refugees as adolescents, I always say, or in the prime of their life when they lost everything and they had to come over somewhere else and actually rebuild it, but from a basic kind of level, I always say it's writing the best essay you did and then losing just the day before it was meant to be given in. And then you have to do the best you can in 24 hours. So if I think as students and as people out there, if we know that panic and feeling of the fact that we lost our greatest essay ever, that we knew that we were going to get um, a-, a from and really plan our futures, losing that and then ended up with something that you had to do in two or three hours. That is what being a refugee is like in, in the sense that when you go from the place that you had everything that you had to nothing. And I think for her to raise six kids on her own, to be able to abort her, fat, her, her my grandparents here and to be able to survive is just incredible because I don't think I would be able to do that. I think I would have had a nervous breakdown. Do you think you're starting to know your mom now? Do you think you understand her now better than maybe five years ago or 10 years ago? Yeah, definitely, because I've stopped thinking about so my mom through myself. So rather than actually like demand, like, for example, I keep I said in the book that I was demanding an apology from my mom for all the things that she did to me or did not do for me. And I just thought actually it's easier for me to forgive my mom and actually go with her with compassion because she is just human and nobody is perfect so I'm seeing my mother as the flawed human as opposed to this person that we assume has to be great and if I do become a mum god willing then I have to be able to understand that there might that there will come a time when I will disappoint my children like I disappoint everybody else around me to a certain extent because we are human we are but I really like what you said I read a a Ghanaian author a couple of weeks ago when I was doing some research on my book she said that her mom was here in the UK and she worked very hard just like your mom and then she didn't understand her mom she's a big celebrity in this country now just she's starting to understand the effort and the all the stuff her mom has been doing to to keep the family going but I definitely understand your what you're saying you are a beautiful woman you have seen some of your photos you're very photogenic so <laughs> girls and boys if you haven't seen Nimco please go on our website she's our champion how do you keep yourself beautiful how do you keep yourself your skin nice this do you have any secret you want to share with the girls Oh, mashallah. Alhamdulillah, hopefully it stays like that. Do you know what I think, well, how do I keep it is, I can't use any like products that are like, you know, too fragrant and stuff like that. I think, you know what? I think goodness from within shines out on the outside. So I think as long as you can, I think peace of mind and being kind to yourself is actually the best way that you can actually protect your kind of energy and the way that you look. Because I don't really talk about it much. And I, I guess it's not something that... Because I've noticed it. I've noticed how beautiful you are. <laughs> I've noticed your skin. Every time I see you, I, I see the beauty in you. So, No, you know what? Thank you very much. Because I was going to say, and hopefully this might like help another young girl in terms of acceptance of who they are and their faith and their kind of journey and stuff. So through my adolescence and all the, I think like literally up until about five, six years ago, I suffered with extreme like bulimia and eating disorders because I had the FGM when I was seven and then I had a medical intervention when I was 11. And the only way that I could control my body was actually just like trying to fill this emptiness that I had with just food because I didn't understand 
how one culture could think it's okay the other one not really care even though they said that it was not good and then when I was in my like early teens or like just when I started high school I found that the way that I could consume all, all this food in order to heal heal for a moment that emptiness I had inside of me but not get extremely fat was to was this eating disorder called bulimia but it was only through finding like acceptance with myself and just actually having peace which I think now radiates in my skin and the way that I am and hopefully in my eyes was the only way that I was able to deal with that so I would honestly say being kind to yourself and not being too hard on the flaws that you think you see um, is the best advice I can give in terms of staying as beautiful as you are. No, oh, that's really amazing. The other thing, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, but the other thing that I, I want to also say is that I, before we do the, the podcast, we do a lot of research and we make sure that the people we invite are highly credible people because the girls listen to this and I want to make sure that the podcast has now become a curriculum. The girls listen to this every Saturday. But I was when we were doing our research, we asked two people to tell us what do they think about you. It's really, it's really fascinating. And, and one of them told us that Nimco has changed my life. You are somebody who's been educating lots of people actually behind the scenes, to be honest with you, through the, what you say, the way you conduct yourself and the way you go. And the other person said that just by learning about female genital mutilation and mental health through Nimco Ali, my life has changed. So I just wanted to put that out there for you to know that you have so many people who admire you. Why do you champion causes like I Am The Code, other organizations, the women politicians? You help so many people, but you say sometimes you help people with what you say, how you do it, what you put out there. You're not afraid of telling the truth. Why? Where did this come from? Honestly, it came from my grandfather. So my grandfather risked his life and almost lost it for sure in order to stand up to the dictatorships in Somalia. And with privilege comes great power. And the whole point is I can say certain things that other girls can't say. And I also can champion things that I know can give girls opportunities because by luck of sliding doors and by chance, I'm sitting where I'm sitting. I'm not sitting where some of these girls are sitting. I was with, with some young activists and they were talking about ending on street sexual harassment. And to really listen to them, it really took me back because here they were. I was almost 20 years older than they are because they were all like, um, 16 or 15 and, and asking for help and I thought 11 years ago I was sitting in this exact same room asking the Home Secretary of the United Kingdom to care about girls like me to care about ending FGM and it just shows the fact that things can happen there is like the, like you know massive opportunities out there for women like us but the other ones the ones that came before us have to be able to set the foundations and I know that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants to, from the granddaughter of an illiterate woman to having an OBE. That just didn't happen. Other women around me had to fight for me to have this right. So I think I do what I do with a level of gratitude and humility and understanding that I might not be the beneficiary of the world that I want for the girls, but that will come and I have a role to play in that. And I see that in my niece every day who's 10 years old never will have FGM and never has it, had FGM or even know about the pains of FGM, freely educated and able to do whatever she wants to do. So, yeah. Does that do make I, you proud? Do you think there's a, there's, prog there's a small progress? I know you're satisfied until there's a big progress in 2030. I know you have a big mission you want to achieve in 2030, but when seeing your people in your community not going through what you've been through, does it make you proud? How does it make you feel? Yeah, it does make me proud. And it also gives me the drive to say that I want more for every girl. Oh, that's really amazing. What are you doing to empower women? I know you help a lot of women. Again, I spoke to two of your mentees, people you help indirectly. Is there anything else you're doing within your day-to-day -day work to empower women? 
Um, you know what? Living my authentic life as a Somali woman, I, I hopefully think will empower women. I did a podcast recently about relationships and about certain views that I have, which I, you know, I think if it gets out very wide, there'll, there'll be a lot of um, negativity coming from it. But, you know, when I get the messages from Somali girls saying, my God, I can't believe there's somebody else out there that lives the way that I live or somebody. Or when I say that I post a pro LGBT quote, it's about really saying that we're, we're within our community, we have a long way to go. But ultimately, there are people out there that are wanting to stand with you and support you. It's amazing. I was just saying to you earlier that at I Am The Code, you are our champion. We're very proud of it. 97% of the girls I work with in the WFUG camp are from Somali. And now you have found yourself who you are. I'm personally very proud to be your friend and to follow your work, actually, in fact, because you're one of the women I always mention in the UK. When you think about everything you've done, I know you, you are still learning and still growing and still educating us and making sure we understand what FGM is and all the topic you're interested in. What would you say to the youngest Nimco when you go back a little bit further to think about that young girl who were passionate and talking and trying to make sure people hear her voice? What would you say to her? What, what is the message you have for that young girl, young Nimco? I think it's, I will say two things which I've said again, which I've said in this podcast is one, I would be like, be kind to yourself. And then when others hurt you, and I know those people who have done that, it's not you, it's them. And for a long time, because I haven't changed, the people around me have changed. It's, it's the main thing. I think that's the thing about the authenticity. It's about actually stay true to that core of who you are. And I don't know how I did and how I didn't lose my path and kind of like go into certain things. Because I've seen my friends lose, lose their path and go to extremism or kind of just like, you know, go against them, their culture and all these things. And I, it's easy to do that. And I don't. And I don't begrudge them for that because it is really hard to be authentic who you are. To be an authentic Somali woman and still be happy and content as you are, it's quite difficult, but it can be done. Like women like me when I was growing up were always seen as something to fear. Oh my God, look at her, not married, no kids, you know, what's her poor? And it's actually quite fun. (laughs) I'm glad I was not scared into living a non-authentic existence. Wow. What, what would Ayeyo said today if she was alive, your grandmother? Oh, my God. Um, I don't know. Well, hopefully she'll be proud. I think no, no, she'd definitely be proud and she just she, she would just mock me. No, she would she would be proud. And there's a funny story. She always said to me when I was about I think it was about I think in my early in my late teens, early 20s, I was sitting next to her and she said, I knew you'd be beautiful. And I thought, what? And she said, no, no, when you were born, you had this big head and everybody was like, my God. She'd be proud of that because you are definitely beautiful. So tick. No, no, exactly. No, it's a really funny story because my mother is really beautiful, mashallah. And when I was born, apparently I was the most attractive baby, but I was the most beautiful thing that my grandmother had ever seen. And she said, well, I knew that you'd go into a beautiful woman. So I think that would be what she would say. Sorry, no, I, no, it's okay. I read, I read the book. I cried as well because I was like, I, I wish Ayayo was my grandmother. I could see you sit as a baby in the gold coat, Ayayo kissing your cheeks, you know? I could see that, you know? So now you're thinking about everything you've done. What is love for you? I'm sure now you know what love is. Probably 10, 15 years ago, you had a different definition of love. What is love now for you, Nimko Ali? Uh, let me put myself together. I think love is kindness. I think kindness and support and 
it was really it's been really interesting I've also learned the value of friendships because coming from my community everything was about family and people that obviously I became friends with were from my community and they had a different thing so I would never actually expect my friends to be like family and because there's actually love comes from kindness and comes from support and comes from people who are consistently there and some of those people end up being people that you weren't born you weren't necessarily born in the same kind of family as with some people that you picked so yeah love is kindness and support and consistency i personally love you because i know that's why i wanted to have in this podcast i choose the people i have very carefully but you are somebody i really admire honestly i really do because i i know I understand you. Sometimes we don't understand people. Yeah. I get you. I get your point. I know where you're trying to go and where you're trying to get. So if you think about the last three years, I've seen you fighting and making sure the world hear you. World leaders invited you to their conferences. I've seen you. What would you say is one or two things that you are really proud of when you sit down and say, I'm really proud of this? Is it the foundation you created or what else are you proud of? Actually, do you know what? It's been able to find happiness and contentment after my grandmother's death I think that was my greatest fear so I think it's the personal journey of that and also this thing the fear I've also overcome the fear of not being liked by everybody I think this this whole thing of the reason why I'm not going to bother with people and not need to explain myself is not because I think I'm smarter than anybody else or I think this is that I'm always right it's, it's, it's the fact that there's very little integrity to the people who want to question the fundamental principles that African women deserve dignity. So yeah, I found I found the ability to, I found acceptance in being disliked because it's not about me. And I've also found strength in the fact that, that there is existence beyond great loss. You always acknowledge people that have helped you. And I read the book. What would you say to the people that have been there to educate probably criticize or do whatever what would you say to these people and what, what message do you have for us african women who are finding ourselves and who wants to become authors and part of the creative industry trying to be there for all of us because whatever you're giving us right now will benefit so many girls across the world what would you say to the people who have supported you in your life Ngali? Obviously, thank you. And I always say to, other, say to other people is the fact that your allies and your supporters don't necessarily come from the places that you expect. Don't be scared of looking beyond your circle in order for somebody that might be able to help you onto the next stage or onto the next level. Because I've incredibly found people who have been genuinely become friends and people that I love and I care about from places that I never expected to find them. And I've actually found people... I found kinship with people that I was told never to connect with and never to understand that will never understand me. And that is something that I will always be grateful for. And I said recently that when in the darkest hours of our foundation in the last even uh, like since, since it started or in the darkest time of the work in the last three years, it's always been somebody from Israel or from the Jewish community that's always stood out and supported us and me and I've been raised I was raised in a community and and from a continent where like people are told oh you can't trust certain people so yeah I always say your allies and, and the people that will support you don't necessarily always look like the way that they do I've got one more quote that I've been always thinking about and when I was doing your research and talking to a couple of people to inspire me to ask you good questions I asked someone this quote be the light that takes the darkness to others what did Nimko Ali to take the light, to take the darkness in your life and bring the light? And one woman said to me, she made me understood about FGM, 
also she made me understood that I was ignorant. I didn't pay attention. What would you say about that? I'd say thank you. And I don't think like, and also the fact that, that that ignorance wasn't conscience. It was the fact that people were trying to stop you from educating you. So you and I don't see the fact that we're interconnected. And I think I know that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book, because it was about saying that no matter what your experience is as a woman, like our first experiences are, are our own and we need to be able to share those in order to find some commonality in those moments of hope or despair. What is food for you? I know I all like love the food. What is food for Nimko Ali? <laughs> food, food has been a lot in the last in the last lockdown. But again, actually, without necessarily meaning to be like what's it called poetic or being deep about it. Obviously, food for a long time for me was my enemy. It was like my friend that would make me feel better, and then it was my enemy. So I never. I used to have friends that would say, "Oh my God," would actually really. I love their food and call themselves foodie and they would go out for... And I was just thinking, I just want to eat when I'm depressed just to make myself binge eat. And then it doesn't really sustain me. And I used to go on like crazy diets. But in the last, obviously, being able to love myself and deal with this, I've been able to find like not just comfort and sustenance in food, but also kind of culture. And I actually really had no idea. So my sister used to say to me, every time I'd go to my auntie's house in London or I'd go to my mom's house, I'd go into the kitchen, I'd, I'd just start eating all the rice that's either in the fridge or in the cooker. And I had no idea that was me just like after weeks of traveling or months of being away from home, just finding some kind of comfort in that in that authentic Somali food. And during the first lockdown, when, when lockdown happened over the summer in this time last year, I started to make Somali food because it was comfort and it was a connection to something that is in my blood, which I never knew. So when I go to my auntie's house and I eat all the food that's there, it's because I want to feel connected to my identity in some way. I do feel like that, but the doctor said to me, stop eating rice. <laughs> You're getting <Yeah>. too big. <laughs> then I stopped eating that. So Nimko Ali, what is abundance? You have one more question. I, I feel that you are abundant. You are calmer, you're quieter, you're wiser. You've always been wise anyway, but you understand now. What is abundance for you? How does it come about? It comes from humor, actually. Honestly, I just think I, I just think just laughing at things is, is a lot easier. And I'm trying to stress less, which is difficult because that's how human nature is, how it's set up is always to be worrying about things. But ultimately, I think humor is how I get my kind of strength in order to do what I do. Well, Nimkali, you and I can talk until tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I am so honored, honestly, to have you on this podcast. And finally, you and I had a time together, folks. I want the people to know who you are, the love I feel for you and everything you're saying. And thank you for educating me personally, but also thank you for educating all of our girls and of all of our audience and people participating in this podcast. Thank you so much, Nimkali, for coming to the I Am Record podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Female genital mutilation is a crime. There are some subject matters, horrible things that are happening across the world. If we all put attention, money, power into it, we can eradicate it, end it. We can really do this. And I really hope that we can learn from COVID-19 where collectively we can start. We have to make a difference. We have the money, the power, the connections. Why are we not stopping female genital mutilation? It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. I really think we should do more. And women like Nimko Ali are fighting the fight. They're fighting what is not right and we should support her. We have made a generation of young girls go through so much in life. It is unnecessary. I have no idea why we're still doing this, but we need to stop doing it. We must do something about female genital mutilation. 
we also need a collective compassion, kindness, empathy, leadership. This is what the world needs right now. Humanity, we need to stop these atrocities against young women and girls. The other thing I was going to say, we must include people. We must include people in all we do. So necessary right now. You have been listening to the I Am The Code podcast. I'm your host, Mariam Jam. Join me for another I Am The Code episode. Thank you so much for being here. We are a very small team at I Am The Code, absolutely dedicated to making the world a better place by creating inspiring content for people who want to be better and do better. Thank you. I'm honored to have you listen to me every Friday. Thank you so much. And I will see you next Friday. Goodbye and have a good weekend. Thank you.